in the United States, uh, the candidates for the Republican leadership have undergone a live TV debate, haven't they? So, uh, I don't even know who it is, or Donald Trump and Jeb Bush and these guys. They've answered questions on their personal lives and they've answered questions on their public sort of policies. Now, whether or not we see these sorts of performances as uh, helpful doesn't kind of really matter just now. Like, we see the point of these things, don't we? Like, these things exist to show the public more about the candidates. You know, more about these, these guys' sort of personalities and their character traits and their natures. But kind of more than that, these things exist to show what sort of governance... You know, what sort of rule these guys might implement should they ever come to power or be elected. And in, in many senses, that is what we are dealing with this evening. Because in Zechariah chapter 9, what God does here is show the general public in Zechariah's time not only something of the nature of this coming ruler that's spoken of in these verses, but God also shows the public something of the coming nature of his rule. And before I go any further, I mean, surely you see this. I mean, surely you see that Zechariah chapter 9 is one of the most obviously and gloriously Christ-centered portions of the whole of this book, isn't it? So do you see what's happening tonight? God is confronting you and I with a prophecy of Jesus. We learn here more about our King. We learn more about his most glorious reign. So, friends, please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. And tonight, really, all we're going to do is consider the two main headings, two headings, two points this evening. We will consider a prophecy of the king, and then we will consider the prophecy of his kingdom. Prophecy of a king, and then the prophecy of his kingdom. So, let's get into this, and let's consider firstly a prophecy of a king. Prophecy of a king. Despite the break that we had last week when we looked at church leadership, um, you'll remember what we saw in the previous section uh, to Zechariah, do you? Do you remember what it was? Do you remember that God was portrayed as a warrior? Remember it? Invading from the north and destroying all the evil and wickedness and Tyre and Sidon and the Philistine territories. God is a warrior. Well, here we're told not of a warrior. The picture changes. It's a kind of contrasting picture. And here we have a king, a ruler. So what is said about this coming king? Well, I'll tell you what, you you do the work with me. Uh, Look at verse 9. And what is said? What's the first thing we've got here? This king that is promised, what is he? He will come to these people and he will come righteous. Now, don't you think we kind of throw that term, uh, righteousness, we throw it about in the church, in the life of the church, a lot. 
Also, I suppose you could say that we throw the idea of righteousness about in society a little bit. You know, if you, your friends can be sarcastic, can't they? We do something nice for them, we do something good. Oh, aren't you righteous? Okay, we throw it about like it's a kind of indefinable, airy-fairy term. Now, I have to say, it's not like that. It is not like that. Righteousness is something that is quantifiable. It is something measurable. It describes how close a person comes to the moral character of God. Do you see what I mean? The more righteous we are, sorry, the more or the closer we get to the nature of God, the more righteous that we we are. And, And crucially for this, in the Old Testament, as God sort of unpacks for Israel more about this Christ, this Messiah that he's promising them, Do you know that that one of the foremost adjectives that he uses to describe that Christ is righteousness? It is righteousness. We we think about it. We think, ah, he promises Israel a branch, doesn't he? Isn't that the, the glorious Old Testament picture of the Messiah, this branch? And what sort of branch is it? It's a Davidic branch, yes, but what is it? Is a, it is a righteous branch that is promised to the people. Do you see the first thing we have here is that this new king will be perfect in his moral character? Okay, what else? What else do we learn about this king? Have a look, verse 9. This king will come righteous and he will come having salvation. Okay, I'd ask you to do this. Um, picture yourself in the original context here. And, and these people are just being told that they are getting a new king. How do they feel? What is their reaction to that? Now, don't you think they would be nervous about this? See, these people at this time, they didn't have a king. They didn't have a, a ruler over them, over them like this. You know, you, you might say, well, what about Zerubbabel? Well, Zerubbabel was a prince, and by this stage, he's, he's long gone. And, and what do we know about kings? What have we seen about kings in this period? They were selfish, weren't they? They ruled for themselves. They did not rule for the people. The people hear about this king. A king is coming and they are nervous. And then what does God say? Exactly what does God say? He does not say there is a king coming. Look at the exact wording. God says a king is coming to you. Or that could equally be translated, a king is coming for you. Do you see what's been said here? This is a promise of a king that was absolutely unlike any other. I mean, this was a king who was coming bringing salvation to the people. A king whose rule existed entirely for the benefit of his subjects. Gone would be that nervousness. Do you see it? This was, this was great news for the people. This was good news. Righteous king having salvation. What's the next bit though? Look at verse 9. Isn't this strange? What does it say? The king would be gentle? I, I don't know, but how would you describe a king? What would the first adjective be to describe a king? It's not going to be gentle, is it? I mean, what, 
what's going on here? What, what does this mean, gentle or humble? Well, I think we learn much from this king's mode of transport. Do you see what that is? Like our queen, I don't know what she, dri- she I was going to say, I don't know what she drives. She doesn't drive anything. I don't know what she's driven about in. It's probably a Bentley, isn't it? Or a Rolls Royce, perhaps. And the, the emperors of Rome, they had their elaborate chariots. What is this king on? Do you see it? A donkey! A donkey! I mean, I'm like, let's not get this wrong. Like we, we think of a donkey as a kind of pathetic animal, don't we, if we're kind of honest? It's a bit of a ridiculous animal, a donkey. You know, if you want to insult your minister on the way out the door, what they say to him, oh, you are a donkey, aren't you? Now, what we have to understand is that's not the case here. In Scripture, especially early on in Scripture, a donkey was a royal animal, a royal king's animal, but only, understand this, if he was to come in peace. You see it? If if ancient kings were trying to assert their majesty, assert their power, assert their authority, what did they ride? They always rode a horse, a war horse. Do you see the point here? This king comes riding a donkey, a king like no other Yes, his credentials are legitimate, he is royal, but he comes in gentleness. He comes not for his own ego, and he comes not for his own honour. He comes gentle, he comes humble. This was a king who was coming in meekness. And isn't it marvellous? Isn't it these first verses? I mean, isn't this the most glorious prophecy of the coming Messiah? But wait a minute, what what do we do with this tonight? You you and I, what what do we do with this? Well, surely, if you're a Christian tonight, surely you see here, this is Jesus. You see that, don't you? But I wonder, if you see that, do you also see what it is that God calls for from you? In light of this prophecy, did you see it? Look at the very first word that dominates the section. Look at verse 9. God shows us the king, but what does he say? He says, rejoice, people. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And friends, tonight I want to ask you this. As believers, is joy a prominent characteristic of your devotional life? Is joy a prominent characteristic of your relationship with God? Do you rejoice in Jesus? I mean, do you really though? I mean, do you rejoice in his righteousness? Does that stir your heart and soul when you think that your Lord, your King, is of the exact same perfect moral character of God? Why? Because he is God. Does your heart not rejoice at that? More than that, do you rejoice in the very reason for his reign? Like tonight, does it delight you that your Christ came not for himself, not for his owner, but for you, 
that he orchestrates everything in the universe as king. And why does he do that? For himself? For you. That you might be saved. Does that not lead to joy more than that? Do you not rejoice in how he's done this? How has he accomplished it? He was humble. Humble. Humble in his circumstances. Born in a manger. Humble in his affliction. Quiet when they tortured him. Does that not, does that not lead to praise? Yet he was rich. But for your sake, he became poor. Doesn't it lead us to rejoice in our Savior tonight? Don't you read this and think, all these people hearing this in Zechariah's time, they, they, they must have been jumping for joy, right? But isn't it better for us? Isn't it better for us? Because what is this? Zechariah chapter 9. It is a prophecy of a coming and what do we know? It has been fulfilled. The king has come. The years ago on Palm Sunday, friends, what happened? To shouts of Hosanna. And in the shadow of his impending arrest, what happened, friends? Our king, he came. And he entered into Jerusalem. And how did he do it? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, this has happened. Our King has come. The people of God, we should rejoice. So we see something of the the glorious character and nature of our king. But in Zechariah 9, we also see something of the character of this king's governance and his rule. So secondly, we see here the prophecy of his kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me, i tell you what we'll do here, God willing. We'll split this. We're thinking about the governance of of. Jesus Christ. Let's think about two areas of his rule and governance. First thing I want us to do is just truly to bask in, in the fact that his is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of peace. Now, what would it be? 1998? Yeah, 1998. Um, after the, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, uh, the British government and the Irish government were, were faced with a bit of a problem, weren't they? Like, peace had been agreed. That was fine. But what were they going to do with all these weapons, thousands of weapons that were still in circulation in the country? Well, what they did was implement um, a policy, a decommissioning project, didn't they? where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of weapons were, were taken in, handed in, found, and they were utterly destroyed in the decommissioning project. Now, if you look at verse 10, that, amazingly, is what we're dealing with in Scripture, isn't it? We've got a decommissioning project here, don't we? And we were told in verse 10 that such is the 
the peace that is established in the reign of this king. Look at this. All weapons, all of them, chariots and war horses, battle bows, everything is going to be destroyed. And, and do you see the extent of the, the peace that the Messiah brings? It stretches from, what is it, the river to the very ends of the earth. Do you see that what you've got is a picture of, of, of uninterrupted, blanket serenity here? I ask you, what happens? Like you, you take that picture of peace, you view it through the gospel. What happens, friends? Well, surely we see before us there what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection. What has he done for us? He has secured us peace. Peace. Now that is... First and foremost, a peace with God, isn't it? But also what Christ has done is secured a future peace in heaven for you and for me. A time in glory where, see this Zechariah chapter 9 stuff? It is going to be perfectly fulfilled. A time where you and I are going to enjoy this. A, a, a time of unthreatened, eternal Calm. And I don't know about you, but when I consider the, the misery of, of life, sometimes that's glory, isn't it? Peace with God, but that future peace. But what I am desperate for you to see tonight is that you, as a Christian, tomorrow and this week, have a role to play in the peace. Now, what, what do I mean? Well, I'll tell you this. Look at, look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 and scratch your heads. Because surely God has said pre, prior to this, he said, I am establishing this peace. There is going to be peace. But look at the language of verse 13. It doesn't sound all that peaceful, does it? Look at this. God says, I am going to bend Judah. So understand that he's talking about his people there. I am going to bend my people into a bow. Then he goes on, I'm, I'm going to use my people, Ephraim, as basically as the arrows. I am going to rouse you, O Zion. And then look how he ends it. I'm going to make you like a warrior's sword. Now, do you see what God is saying? He is saying that though ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, his Messiah, has won this war, that until that victory is revealed that he is going to use his people to experience and participate in that victory. Now, are you hearing me? That though that outcome of the war on sin is certain, until the world sees that on that final day, God is promising to use you as weapons in his hand to wage war on evil. And I think that is a glorious thought, isn't it? Isn't it? That as you and I battle our sin on a daily basis, what are we actually doing? We are participating in the victory that Jesus has won. As we fight sin, we are weapons in the hand of our God. And isn't it marvelous? Isn't it a glorious thought? 
But I hope and pray tonight it is much, much more than that for you. I hope this is a prompt to your sanctification. But is it? Is it? This knowledge that there's a peace coming secure with Jesus? The knowledge that you can be a weapon in God's hand? Does that motivate you for tomorrow? Motivate you to fight with all the power and all the might that you have to fight the skirmishes with wickedness that still break out in your life, does it? Friends, we should praise our God. We should praise our King because His is a kingdom of peace. And then lastly, notice also, and I mean this in a positive sense, <laughs> that His is a kingdom of pride. It's a kingdom of peace, but in a very positive sense, it is a kingdom of pride. At home, in the manse, in our family worship times, in amongst all of the chaos, we are trying to go through the book of Genesis with the children. And at the moment, um, in particular, we're going through that, that story of, um, of Joseph and his betrayal by his brothers. And I don't need to, you know the story, I don't need to tell you the story. Um, we kind of sort of sanitize that for, for the children normally, but reading it and going through that story, and it really hit me the horror of that, that whole thing. Joseph thrown into, what was he thrown into? A pit, you know, a sort of waterless kind of cistern, and he was left for dead. I'm reading that and going through that and just thinking that must have been horrific. You know, that sense of, that total hopelessness, helplessness, the despair of it, the trauma of it. And I want you to see that that is exactly the language that is used here. Look at verse 11. <coughs> what we're told there is that this coming king is going to, what's he going to do? He's going to set his people free. He's going to liberate us from what? Look at it. It's the same language in here. He sets us free from a waterless pit. How does he do it? Look above it. Look at how the verse begins. Through the blood of my covenant. The blood of my covenant. I will set you free. Do you see it? This is what Christ has done for us. He liberates us. He frees us from that despair and from that trauma of sin. And how does he do it? How does he do it? He himself enters into that waterless bed. The waterless grave himself. But that's only half of it. Look at verse 16. God says, on that day, we become part of his flock. So what God is showing us there is that in our salvation, we are not just liberated. We are not just exonerated from guilt. That on that day, in our salvation, we become part of God's possession. That we belong to God. And this is how I want us to close just now. I long for you, if you're Christian tonight, to see just how 
cherished a possession you are to your God. See, this is prophecy, and certainly when you get to verse 16 and verse 17, the future is in view. This is about your heavenly future, friends. And do you see what God says about us? He says, we will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Do you see what that is? It is the very fact that you and I will be and are even just now God's most treasured and cherished possession. We are God's jewels. Isn't that a thought? Do you see it? Do you see what it teaches us? It teaches us that God's plan of salvation doesn't end at the cross. Doesn't doesn't even end in the Perusia when Christ returns. It shows us that God's gospel goal was always to have you with him. To have you established in the land with him. Isn't that a glorious thing? That he will for eternity look at you and love you. And he will care for you. You are his jewels. You are his most treasured possession. That forevermore he looks at you. And it warms the heart of God himself. Isn't it an incredible thing? God for eternity taking pride in you. And so we'll end in the same way that we ended this morning. And we end with a question. I said at the start, you are being confronted with a picture of Jesus, your king, and his kingdom. Here's my question for you, for everyone. Have you submitted your life to that king? Have you? I mean, if if you're not a Christian tonight and, and you read this, surely you see in his righteousness and humility and the extent of his reign, surely you see you must give your life to to such a ruler, to such a king. If you do that this evening, what happens? He reaches into your life. And he pulls you out of your waterless pit. But if you are a Christian tonight, I ask you the same thing. Have you submitted all of your life to this king? Are there areas of your life that you haven't handed over to him? Friends, this week... Fight your sin and submit everything that you are to this Jesus. You see here tonight what he is, don't you? He is humble, he is gentle, he is righteous. And he deserves all of our praise. So, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, daughter of Jerusalem. See, hear your king. He comes to you. Let's pray.